My name is Arun Ramanathan. I'm the CEO of Pivot Learning. I am not Vivian Wu. Let's see if I can get to the right thing here. Other way? All right. So I'm going to talk to you all about a world without labels. This is actually my vision of the future of education and the future of learning. And, um, you know, but before I do that, before I, you know, advance 20, 30 years into the future, I'm actually going to take you back 35 years. Um, today's the day when we show pictures of us when we were young, right? <laughs> so this is me when I was 12 years old. Uh, and I actually immigrated to this country. Um, you know, and I didn't immigrate like a lot of folks. My family, we came from India and from England, and we didn't land on the coast. We didn't land on the East Coast. We didn't land on the West Coast. We actually landed in Memphis, Tennessee, which was an atypical place for Indians at that time, the early 1980s, to land. Um, and, you know, there are several things that we did not know back then, and I did not know in the early 1980s about Memphis, right? I'd actually never heard about the Civil War. I didn't know anything about race relations. My parents didn't either. Uh, they didn't know the history of the Deep South, and Memphis is actually the Deep South. But what they did know, which is something that every immigrant parent, a lot of immigrant parents know deeply in their hearts, is that one of the reasons that you come to this country is to give your children the greatest opportunities that they can get and the best education that they can get. So my parents, in order to give me that opportunity, put me into a private school in Memphis, Tennessee. What they did not know, though, was that this school opened up in 1954. And if any of you know why that date is important, it's because of a Supreme Court case called Brown versus Board of Education, which was supposed to end uh, the separation, a separate and unequal system that placed black children in one school and white children in other schools. Now, it did not do that in Memphis, Tennessee. And the reason it did not do that was because white parents created private Christian schools and academies and put their kids into those schools. So in the early 1980s, not knowing any of this, I had the great joy to be one of the first non-white kids to go to one of those schools. I was actually one of the first non-white kids. I was the first non-Christian or Jew. I was the first immigrant to go to that school, and I was the first non-native English speaker. Um, it was a lot of firsts, right? Uh, what the firsts actually meant in practice was that I got to experience the joys of all of those different categories of people that other people see as foreign, different, uh, and every single negative stereotype you can imagine. So I got all the racial attacks. Uh, I got all of the religious ones. I got all of the ethnic ones. Uh, it was a nice potpourri of negativity that just I took from year 12, when I was 12 years old, this to about 13, 14, and on. And I took it from the teachers along with the students. And the goal there was to break me down. But I'm an incredibly stubborn human being. Unfortunately, I, sometimes I look back at that kid, and could you not have been a little less stubborn, right? And I didn't break. What I did do was get angry, because sometimes something, you know, you can get negative from those experiences. But it also built in me something else, which was a deep sense of empathy for the kids who are on the margins on the extreme margins, right? So this 12-year-old kid actually became a special educator, uh, an educator that worked with some of the most disabled students, you know, kids with severe and profound disabilities, kids with autism. I actually worked in deep, in high poverty neighborhoods in, in both rural settings and urban settings with English learners. I worked in 
uh, you know, highly African-American schools, highly uh, English learner schools. I worked in all of those schools. And I worked in them also with carrying this belief, this belief that if you give kids labels, if you give kids labels that they are going to get more money, more services, and more attention. And that is something I've carried with me a long time. I've actually done research in this area. I studied the original uh, years of IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the early years of some of our English learner programs. right? And the notion, again, that we carry, we always carry with us this idea that the label itself is a positive for the kids and for the systems. But I've started to question this lately, and I want to start actually with the, with the label English learner. And for decades, we've actually believed that our goal, actually it's been for centuries, is to teach every kid that comes to this country English, and that English is the key to economic success, and it's better to learn English than to retain your native language. I came to this country speaking two other languages, and my parents were told, don't speak to him in those languages, and I lost them as a result. My wife, who's Latina, who grew up not far away from here on 3rd Street, her brothers and sisters were actually whacked in school for speaking Spanish. But we had good intentions. The intentions were there, and actually my parents to this day will agree with this. The intention was that English proficiency equals economic success. And if you're labeled an English learner, you'll be given additional support. The question is, is what happens to good intentions when you, when you place them in a deeply, profoundly, structurally racist system? one that's actually based, in some sense, on a colonial perspective of what you need to do to gain economic success. And actually, when you look at the outcomes of this label, you have to raise these questions. This is California. This isn't the Deep South. I put up there that 13% of English learners are proficient in math compared to 44% of non-ELs. That data hasn't changed in 20 years. 24% are actually eligible to go to a UC or a CSU, compared to 54%. Again, data that has not changed literally in decades. Yet, the label gives more money, more attention, and access to economic opportunity. The truth is, we have a system now where English learners, often from very early grades, are pulled out from the regular curriculum, again, to give them more support, placed often once they get into middle and high school in lower level ELD courses and tracked into what really truly is a profoundly separate and unequal system that produces these results. Again, many years after the passage of Brown versus Board of Education. So what if we questioned the actual fundamentals of this system? This is the stuff that I've been thinking about, right? Like what if we actually believe that multilingualism led to economic success, that it's better to retain your language then, and also return English, also learn English? If we didn't view children the moment that they entered our schools as broken because they spoke the language of their parents, we actually might actually change that label and look at all kids as emerging bilinguals instead of viewing these children as broken and needing to be fixed. That's switching this construct into a different construct. Again, ending a label. Does this also hold for special education? And I'm going to look at a very specific student population here for special education. I'm going to look at African-American students in special ed. This is the data in California. 6% of the student population in California is African-American. One in five African-American students in our state are labeled as having a disability. That's a bit of a difference from 
In San Francisco Unified, where I taught, and I taught kids with emotional disturbance, by the way, one out of every four kids with ED is African-American. You walk into those classrooms in San Francisco, you can, wow, I'll take you some in San Jose and in Oakland. Every kid in that classroom will be a, an African-American male. That data has not changed in decades either. And we're okay with it. Because the label itself is supposed to bring additional support, additional resources, and better results. So what does that actually mean in terms of results? One in 10 African-American third graders with a disability are actually proficient in English language arts or math. Third grade is actually the, you know, we've all heard, if you're proficient or not, it's gonna, you know, they start counting the prison cells based on whether you're proficient or not. 14% of African-American students with a disability actually have the credits to attend a UC or CSU. These numbers haven't changed in a really, really long time. But again, we're still good with this notion that a label is gonna get you additional support and additional success. I actually have worked in these classrooms. I have worked in these schools. I've led systems, you know, that have specialized systems that have had these issues. And I can tell you that those rooms, those classrooms, are profoundly separate and unequal system, and yet we are consistently okay with that. What if we questioned again the fundamentals? Before assessing a student with disabilities, what if we actually looked to see whether they had been given the resources to succeed? We diagnosed the school and the classroom instead of diagnosing the child. We would ask, did the child have access to high quality preschool? Did they have structured and explicit literacy instructions? We're such, we're, my organization is now teaching kids to read adolescents that are in prison, juvenile detention. Never been taught in many of the systems that surround us right now. Did they have positive and restorative learning environments? I would actually argue African-American parents should not allow their child to be identified as having a disability until these factors are in place. Because quite frankly, the alternative is a straight line pathway into a separate and unequal system. And then I'm gonna give you one more, mostly because I'm sitting on a you know, campus right now. Let's look at the A to G. Again, the greatest of intentions, the standard by which we're gonna determine whether a, a student qualifies to get into a four-year university in California. But the fact is, when you look at the numbers, for the vast majority of our state students, they're pretty poor, and they're particularly poor for the students who are black and brown, 40%, four out of every 10. So what we're okay with, again, this is a label. This is a systematic label. The kids who are non-A to G are actually placed, are actually often the English learners and the kids with disabilities who are placed in a separate system. But this is a systematic result that continues on. And yet the constant refrain is, we just gotta get more kids A to G. What if we question whether A to G is the right thing? Whether a set of standards that have been established by a group of mostly white men in an elite university system is actually the right thing for our state and whether it really actually matters whether a kid takes three English classes or six, right? I talked to you know, a, he, a famous you know, professor at Stanford who told me it's actually easier for a student who misses one A to G course to get into Stanford than it is to get into a CSU. That is a deeply messed up system. It's a structurally racist one and it's the one that we have in California. So what if we stopped labeling students? By the way, we can get rid of this. We actually can get rid of this. And started naming the dysfunction and racism in the system. And what can we do? 
This is what we can do. Again, before we apply a label, before we start thinking about labels, and you know, before we start using, again, this construct that labels mean more access, better results, we started assessing the impact of our good intentions in a fundamentally racist system. Because when you apply them, they sometimes don't lead to the result you think they're, they're going to lead to. We stopped pathologizing children. And we, instead of adding labels and barriers, we actually removed them. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Thanks.